the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Well, as part of our continuing look in the Adelaide Hills at the history of the RAAF, today it's Ken Semler, fighter pilot, Vietnam veteran and aide de camp. Now, Ken says he had 10 very happy years in the RAAF from 1963 to 1973. Initially, after training, he was on Sabres at Williamtown. He spent time in Darwin during the Indonesian confrontation before being posted to Mirages. Ken then took part in Operation Fast Caravan, flying Mirages from Williamtown to Butterworth in 1967. As an aide in RAAF base Butterworth and in Singapore, he had great experiences as gear and flap man with transport support flight on C-47 Dakotas. Ken was posted as a forward air controller in Vietnam to the 19th Tactical Air Support Squadron, USAF, from January to November 1970. Then, a change of pace. He became ADC to His Excellency, the late Sir Paul Hasluck, uh, from February 1971 to mid-1972. He resigned from the RAAF in late 1972 when his dad sadly passed away. Ken said... He could never repay the Air Force for what it did for him in those 10 years. He then became involved in the grape industry and the community in the Barossa Valley, where he now lives, running St. Jacoby Vineyards with his wife, Helen. Well, quite an introduction, Ken. Ken Semler, fighter pilot in Vietnam. How are you today? Well, indeed, thank you. As the gentle rain falls... Oh, it's raining in South Australia, is it? Yes, it's uh, oh, just, a, just a little drop. Yeah. Well, think of it this way, Ken. It will look after the vineyards at St. Jacoby. Too right it will. <laughs> Ken, I suppose the best place to start is why did you join the Air Force back in 1963? What was your motivation? That's a good question. I, um, you know, as you're probably aware, just grew up on a farm. Uh, but for some odd reason, I uh, had a great interest in uh, heavier-than-air machines, although that my uh, machines were made of balsa wood, so they weren't much heavier than air. And uh, I often wonder how I got into my little bedroom, which was a sleep-out on the farmhouse, uh, because of the aircraft that were hanging from the roof. But the... Um, during uh, my stay at Newry High School uh, in the secondary years, I uh, joined the Army Cadets and really came to enjoy that. That was the highlight of my secondary education. Did they not have an ATC, an Air Training Corps at the school as well? Was it only Army? It was only Army. There was ATC. However, uh, that was, oh dear, about 20 k's away. Right, right. Um, all right, so you've joined the uh, the Army Cadets at school. Uh, mm. Where you lived on the farm, uh, were there 
planes in evidence around you apart from the balsa wood ones you made? <laughs> well, yes. Um, in fact, uh, had a couple of uncles who take me all to the air shows because they were interested in aircraft as well. Right. And uh, indeed, my dad probably ranks as uh, one of the first blokes in the southern Barossa to go for a ride in a in an aircraft. Uh, he didn't tell his dad because his dad would have been cranky at him using his uh, hard-earned uh, pocket money. But Dad stood up in this ruddy biplane and thought it was just absolutely fantastic. So maybe I inherited it from him. Yeah, well, I, I'm, thank goodness you did because you've had a very long and illustrious career with the RAAF. Um, I, I reading in about you, and you're referred to sometimes as a gear and flap man. What is a gear and flap man? <laughs> oh, well, this relates, Gareth, more to uh, oh, 67 to 69, you know, just a couple of years ago, when I was with 75 Squadron in uh, Malaysia, Singapore, and uh, they had a transport support flight based at Butterworth, which flew the uh, Goonie Birds or the C-47s. And uh, we were blessed with a great boss, Jim Fleming, the late Jim Fleming. Man, what a leader. Anyway, the Maridies who flew the Goonie Birds used to like to stay home on weekends. Well, they were always after co-pilots. And I remember going into the, the boss's office and said, yeah, Samler, what do you want? And I said, oh, sir, look, the uh, transport support flight is interested in getting uh, blokes as, uh, as co-pilots. He said, go for it. Take every advantage you can to get whatever experience you've got. So <clears throat> there I was, I was sitting in the right-hand seat of the, the Goonie Birds, uh, flying around, oh, you know, to see my mates up in Vietnam, uh, Thailand. Of course, we had the uh, squadron of sabres at Ubon. Yep. And, of course, into Laos, which was really interesting. Okay. Now, look, you joined in 1963. Correct. Just, just take us through your first experience in a cockpit actually taking off and landing. Tell us about that, and, and what sort of plane was it? Well, it was in a Windjill, uh, Australian-made trainer, uh, built very strongly, hence good for ham-fisted pilots, uh, had a good... 450 Pratt radial up front, so plenty of grunt. And, um, but I remember, you see, when I went to Point Cook uh, on number 50 pilots course, I'd had no previous flying experience and the scrub rate was 50%. So I thought, I've got Buckley's chance. However, I knew how to work, but I will remember going into Jimmy Stewart's office. Jimmy Stewart uh, was my instructor and his first remarks, similar, ever flown before? No, sir. He said, that's good. You haven't got any bad habits. <laughs> and he was a reprobate, but he gave one confidence. So when I hopped in the cockpit with, uh, with the instructor, uh, was with a little bit of trepidation, but I thought, hey, this bloke is giving me a chance and giving me encouragement. 
Yeah. And away we went. Would you say that that kind of support for upcoming uh, trainees, uh, new mm. people into the Air Force, has been one of the many great strengths of the RAAF? Oh, yes. And if I may, I'll just recount um, a story about a bloke on our course, Ron McGrath. His nickname is Magilla and still is because he's a great big bloke. So it was a cross between McGrath and Gorilla. Magilla. Now, he, Gareth, was an engineer with Qantas. So he was at, I was at the, just 18, at the low end of the scale. Ron was at the top end uh, of the age acceptance. Now, usually if you didn't go solo by about 10 hours, you were looked at very carefully and possibly given the flick. Our flight commander, um, uh, or the CFI, really saw something in Ron and persisted. And he was well into, I don't know, 12, 13 hours. And we were all out on the airfield doing, uh, being blown around with how to practicing how to get out of parachutes and rubbish like that. Yep. When McGill went solo, we all stopped, stood up and cheered. Now, Ron went on to head the flying training school and uh, he's still fly- he's 80 and he's still ruddy flying over in WA. Goodness. Now, he's, he's lifted the bar far above for us lesser mortals. Yeah. But that was an illustration to me of the encouragement given and the looking beyond ticking the boxes. Sure, sure. Um, you uh, have had all sorts of uh, different experiences in the Air Force and, and re- relating the importance of that support from above down is most important mm-hmm. to talk about the spirit of the Corps itself. But as you progressed in those, from 18 years of age to, say, 24, what was your yes. progression from the Windjeel on? What was next? Windjeel across to Pierce on the Vampire and then to, as posted to fighters at Williamtown, so then onto the Sabre, which was a wonderful sports car. <laughs> and then, uh, and that was during... Uh, you know, confrontation with Indonesia. So we were somehow rushed like blazers through the course uh, up to Darwin, which was great fun in Darwin. And then onto the Mirage course. And I went with 75, which was the first Mirage squadron that was under the command of Jim Fleming. We'll we'll just, if I interrupt, we'll we'll come to that in just a moment. I just want to go back. I want to talk about the confrontation, but I also want to talk about the vampire because as a very yes. little boy, there was a, a series of toys called Dinky Toys. You could buy cars and planes. <laughs> one of my, my favourite little items was a vampire with a twin <laughs> True? <tail>. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the vampire. What's it like to, what was it like to fly? Well, it was one's first experience of a suck-and-blow machine, a jet aircraft. Uh it wasn't designed for originally for ejection seats and I used to get a very sore backside because you sit on the point of your bum and 
it was an uncomfortable aeroplane. But it was, oh, one came, well, okay, it was the training aircraft and I really came to enjoy a lot of the flying in it, particularly formation work. Yeah. So was it ever intended to be a fighter or was it only ever intended in Australia to be a, a trainer? No. Well, in fact, uh, we had squadrons before equipped with a single-seat vampire as a fighter aircraft. Indeed, we had a wing in Malta, oh, in the early 50s. Right. Um, on, on vampires. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. So anyway, it was it was both. You've helped me you've helped me relive part of my childhood. <laughs> let's go let's go to the confrontation. What do you remember about it and how was it received within the force of the Australian air people? Well, I think we uh, I'm not sure whether we really expected to be uh, uh, you know bombed or whatever. However, uh, we had the blokes up in uh, in Butterworth, of course, did a stint in Borneo, because there our army was in a fair dinkum fight um, across the border with the Indonesians. Yeah. Um, I mean, there was no, you know, it was fair dinkum fun and games. Whereas back in Darwin, we practised a lot uh, for a possible attack with the uh, uh, the Badger which, of course, had a standoff missile. So we did a heck of a lot of uh, flying, practising that with the uh, our radar station out at uh, East Point out of Darwin. And uh, we even practised night intercepts, would you believe, in a sabre with no radar, but using the limited look angle on the sidewinder to pick up a tone. Now, oh dear, uh, but we did that. And so we did a heck of a lot of training in that direction. But, oh, Darwin was a lot of fun because those days there were five pubs and that was the total. (laughs) There was no TV, you beauty, uh, lots of weapons work and, uh, oh, no, good. It It was great. Because Just, the fun you had. Hmm. Go back go back to the night flying, uh, yep. tactical night flying in a sabre with no radar. That yep. surely speaks volumes for the level of proficiency of the pilot in the Royal Australian Air Force, surely. Well, to be honest, we got pretty good. We also, we got bored, so we'd do night formation as well, uh, just to keep us on our toes. Um <laughs> Now, that was quite entertaining, uh, but but no, in retrospect, yeah, yeah, we, we, we were uh, pretty good at our trade, given the tools of trade that we had. Yeah, so your time, would you rate your time as uh, ground, ground attack with 77 Squadron from 69 as one of your highlights? Um, oh, yes, yes. Um, a funny story there with 77 because I was a brand new flight lieutenant and uh, was slotted into uh, the role of flight commander I mean big deal we had about five pilots I think and I'll tell you a story about the first flight of a Mirage 
in 77 squadron it i don't know what was written in the in the squadron records however what was the name there was a name oh skippy skippy the bush kangaroo do you yes, remember that i do yeah. remember that <laughs> <laughs> would you believe i did the first flight mirage flight in 77 and they wanted a low level high speed pass for use in skippy now that was a what do you call a highly operational necessity uh <laughs> and and I don't know whether it, it was ever aired or whatever, but it was a lot of fun. Does that make but you a television star as well as a, as a pilot? <laughs> yeah, if they could see me smiling as I went past, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. All good fun. Why, why were you posted to the 19th Tactical Air Support with the United States Air Force? How did that come about? Well, I... Um, was very interested in joint warfare and I don't know why um, and by joint warfare I mean I don't mean the army fighting the navy fighting the air force but using the I suppose the unique talents of each service to achieve a common aim and I much enjoyed the ground attack role I, I love the weapons work mm. and uh, that comes out of I suppose being a very good shot back on the farm on rabbits, foxes and stuff like that uh, under the tutelage of a, of a great uncle. And uh, so I just a bit got, got writer's cramp applying for the job of forward air controller because our um, forward air or FAC involvement began in 66 uh, when the couple of wing commanders were in the 7th Air Force headquarters in Saigon and they got sick of it and said, oh, look, blow me down. Hey, look, we've got ground attack experience. Uh, how about we do, you know, complete half our tour on the O1 at that stage as a fact? And that's how it began. So, but eventually I got that slot in uh, 1970, at the start of 70. And back, back in 1970, what was it like for an Australian working with the then United States Air Force? Oh, look, um, good fun. Um, yeah, because look, one learns more from people who've been through a different school than one has, than if you're working with your own mob. Yeah. And I wanted to learn. And uh, it was very much that way, um, albeit, when one first went into, I'd never seen an OV-10 before, and uh, spent a week learning to fly it and then then went to work in support of the 25th Div. Yep. Now, in that, we were initially with the 2nd Brigade and we had a rather unique little unit. Our uh, boss was Australian, Graham Neal, uh, retired Air Vice Marshal now and a great mate um, about three Yanks and a Kiwi and we lived pretty well to ourselves and uh, it was a great experience however then for the rest of my tour I went with the 1st Air Cavalry Division uh, out of Benoit and uh, I was the only Australian in, well, in the 1st Air Cav I think 
So uh, tell, tell us then about that single experience. Tell us about the camaraderie that existed even then between USAF and RAAF. Oh, very, very, very strong. Um, we came from, you know, different backgrounds. And so um, we were lucky because we, I mean, the, the fact job was just ready made for us because we were, uh, we all had a, at least two tours on ground attack experience. So really didn't need any, uh, uh, it, was, it was training on the job. Yeah. Whereas a lot of the Yanks, they were, you know, running very short of fighter pilots and they came from B-52s, transports, you name it, yep. and um, uh, had a f to do a fair bit of adjustment to be effective in yep. their role. Whereas, I see, this is the problem. Um, I reckon that at the end of my stay, I was just beginning to be useful. And, of course, I applied to extend, but they said, nah, nah, we're short of file pilots back home. Uh, so home we went, and then I was supposed to do a ground job. Yeah, well, uh, that's interesting. <laughs> they tell you they tell you they're short of fighter pilots back home, but you end up as ADC to Sir Paul Hasluck. Now, how did that occur? Oh, uh, yeah. Look, uh, you need certain qualifications. One, you've got to be single. <laughs> Right. And then, um, apart from that, uh, pretty well at the end of a tour of whatever you're doing, and I was uh, selected as one of the potentials before I went to Vietnam, when I was with 77 Squadron. Yeah. And I don't know how I plucked up the courage because... I mean, blow me down. You walk into uh, completely unfamiliar, frightening territory. And um, anyway, the following morning after the dinner, um, interview with His Excellency, and uh, he said, well, Semler, would you like to, you know, serve here? Somehow I said, uh, no, sir. Um this is to the Commander-in-Chief, uh, I'm just about to get my posting to Vietnam, I'm Flight Commander in 77 Squadron, and I, I really would like to, uh, to do that. And he didn't have me hung, drawn and quartered. He dismissed me and um, blow me down, the end of Vietnam, guess who was still single, um, end of a tour, yeah. and was fingered again, so away we went. So that's an I, honest account. I think he impressed you with your answer in the first place, uh, uh, Ken. <laughs> I would like you to, I mean, Vietnam now, as far as Australian history is concerned, seems to be a long time ago, yes. uh, especially for young people. And young people may be listening to you right now on this podcast. What was your experience like during that Vietnam period, while you were serving in Vietnam. Can you just mm. recount or paint a picture for sure. us? Sure. Look, I, I think I'll preface my remarks by saying that it troubles me that Vietnam is looked at in a singular 
context. One can never comment on Vietnam without including um, the war in Malaya, which went from 48 through to the mid-60s, yep. uh, Korea, um, Thailand with our squadron there, confrontation with Indonesia. I mean, it was really inevitable that we would be uh, we'd be in a shooting war in Vietnam. Now, I um, I enjoyed the role. Uh, I mean, the first two and a half months, I don't think there was a, a day that one didn't fly to support the army, look under trees, work out what the NVO were doing. That was right up my alley. In the fight, you were too busy to be bothered about anything very much. However, at the end, you said, well, did that really happen? And it was a very intense role, uh, but often there was a lot of boredom in between. But as to the OV-10, it was the perfect aeroplane for the job. Excellent visibility. I remember Ray Butler, we were on the same FAC course, same Mirage course. He was in Vietnam before me. And I flew with him a little bit out of Benoit before I went up to Da Nang to learn to drive the OV-10. And uh, his words were, Sam's the flying is easy, the bloody radio work that you've got to hard, work hard. And you're not really wrong. Because yeah. you're speaking to the ground command on one of your Fox mics, artillery on the other one, your own headquarters on VHF, and your fighter aircraft on UHF. But we also had an HF set, and that was handy, because I tried to get flights on Saturday nights to get the Aussie footy scores on HF. <laughs> and then Sunday mornings, and here's the incongruous thing, um, to listen to the Lutheran Hour uh, and have Dr Oswald Hoffman deliver a, a wonderful uh, gospel message. And I remember one particular Sunday morning, I was busy looking under trees, and uh, then a heck of a fight developed, and so to give up my gospel message and go to work. Uh, but <laughs> that, I mean, big deal. That's that's the Lord in action, Ken. That's the Lord. <laughs> I never thought of it that way, yeah. but Tell but us about, no. Uh, it's about the OV10 Bronco. Yeah. Again, what amazing sports car! Excellent vision, which was vital. Of course, you always wished you had a bit more grunt, but then you always do. But carried its own weaponry. You know, two pods of HEs and two pods of your marking rockets, yep. plus four M60 machine guns. Now, the M60s were pop guns, but in a fight, it was enough to keep the opposition's heads down or to stop them from running away before we had fighters on action, on station, or you could whistle up a couple of choppers, and uh, Ringo could well talk about that, who happened to be drifting by at the time being and felt like a bit of entertainment. All right. Now, I'm going to ask you, uh, we, you mentioned earlier on Jim Fleming. Mm. I'd like if you could just take a moment and compare your time under mm. Jim Fleming in 75 Squadron mm. to your time with the United States Air Force. How would those two compare? Very hard to compare because with the USAF and being allocated to a brigade, 
it was, uh, I mean, you spent about one day and four or five out with the grunts at a fire support base, so you got to know some of the blokes you were supporting, which was great. A completely different role. I mean, we did our job in support of the 2nd Brigade and whatever other brigade we're allocated to during our tour, but the boss, Jim Fleming, had an amazing attitude. He uh, started as, a, as an AC2 in World War II, uh, you know, sweeping hangars, he held every rank in the RAF up to including two-star, except one. Yeah. Now, they don't make blokes like that anymore. He was in Korea, and I think he flew the first operational sortie, of course, in the Mustang. And his attitude to us, he said, if anything helps get aircraft in the air, do it. If there's anything impeding it, don't do it. I'll take the kicks. And he stood behind, he said, everybody in the squadron is a fighter pilot. Doesn't yep. matter whether you're in the admin or whatever, because if they don't get their job done, you blokes don't fly. Yeah, well, and that was his attitude. Now, that he really the- rubbed up his superiors, because in Malaysia, of course, the, we got into a lot of strife. But he, uh, he said... I'll take care of the discipline. Don't let anyone touch my boys. And by gee, he sorted us out, but he defended us. Yeah, that Ken, that Ken really is a mark of a good leader. I've got a couple of other things I'd just like to very briefly touch upon. Hmm. Um, unfortunately, or sadly, you had to leave or call your time with the RAAF and then because your father passed away. How yes. hard was that? Tough. Uh, look, I, I love the RAF. I mean, as I said, it did more for me in 10 years than I could have ever done for it had I stayed with it the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it was it was attitude. You know, the arguments we had in the bar. Now, you might have quite opposing attitudes on various topics. doesn't matter what the topic was, but you were expected to defend your point of view. But that didn't stop you the next day from Ruddy flying together and you know, being the great mates. That was the essence. And that's what, sadly, in our society today, this robust uh, discussion and debate, this is a ruddy bucket of water being thrown on it. Yeah. Um, but look, just uh, I realise time and a half goes by, but one thing I just must comment on, and I didn't mention... For the last 20 years, one's been the volunteer gopher for the Australian War Memorial regarding the acquisition, uh, chasing parts, etc., for an OV-10. And we're almost complete. Is Made this, quite a few trips to the States. Is this the National War Memorial? or is Yes, it- in Canberra. So yeah. that, that is likely to come to fruition for an OV-10 Bronco reasonably soon? It certainly is. All we got to do now is to um, uh, recover a, a few uh, rocket pods, and there are some in Australia, plus rockets and uh, the M60 barrels, and that'll do. And yeah. uh, it's in. Ma- it's been restored to magnificent condition, and it'll be the only, or it is the only aircraft in the Warm World collection with Yusuf markings.
Oh, that's that's fantastic. <laughs> I, do have, I do have one last question, but it, yes. would, it would be remiss of me not to say for those listening to the uh, podcast right now that your involvement with the RAAF did help when you had left the RAAF, RAAF to get involved in the grape industry, uh, to get involved with the RSL, uh, to get involved with the Bible Society, with school administration and also overseas aid. So all of that experience you gained in the Royal Australian Air Force through your years with it gave you a fundamental strength to be able to do all those additional things. And this perhaps might be the last question. How would you summarise, maybe in one paragraph, what the RAAF did for you and meant for you? The flying was important. When I left the RAF, I was often asked, do I miss the flying? I say, yes, I do but I miss the robust company. And indeed, the friendships made then, uh, the value has probably increased over the years. Ken, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for your service to the Royal Australian Air Force in its 100-year history. And I know that you've uh, got a good vineyard in mind and some <laughs> vineyards continues to go on. So, sir, thank you for your service. Well, thank you and... Uh, Vintage 2021 has been a very, very good one. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.